Anyway, we are looking at the story, and uh, we're going to get into it uh, in just a moment. I really got you to stand because you've been sitting for a long time, but we're going to read the text. And our text this morning is Genesis chapter 1 all the way through to Genesis chapter 11, verse 9. But you're not going to be reading that much. We're just going to read some opening text in Genesis to get a feel for the story, and then I will bring you through it. And the other thing I just want you to know is that normally at Glad Tidings, we use the English Standard Version for what we do, the ESV. Uh, During the next uh, number of months, we're going to be using the NIV to coincide with the Story Bible um, that um, some of you purchase and others of you may want to. But uh, let's begin today, and uh, I'm going to read the blue, and you're going to read the white, and this is what it says. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And then the Lord God made a woman from the rib he had taken out of the man, and he brought her to the man. He did. (laughs) He really did. There we go. And then the Lord God made a woman from the rib he had taken out of the man. No, sorry. I don't know what's going on. Here we are. And when the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye, pleasing to the eye, and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some of and ate it. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate it. Well done. Let's pray together. Father, again, we just want to pause and acknowledge that you are here in the person of Jesus Christ through the Holy Spirit. And we thank you today for all that you have done in, through, and as Jesus Christ and for the Holy Spirit that makes it applicable, possible, and available in our lives. And we pray today as we start on this process of learning the story and working our way through the Bible story from Genesis to Revelation, that you will give us ears to hear, minds to understand, hearts to comprehend, and particularly, Lord, that it would seep down into our lives where when we leave this place and go into our homes and living in our marriages, and living in our relationships with family, and with friends, and with neighbors, and people we work with, and people we go to school with, and people that 
where we buy and get our services, that we would live out in meaningful, practical ways what it means to be fully devoted followers of Jesus Christ. So help us, we pray, in the name that is above every other name, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. You may be seated. A little boy was at his grandmother's house, and he was thumbing through his grandmother's Bible. And thumbing through his grandmother's Bible, he found in the grandmother's Bible a leaf like I found in this book a little while ago. And without, without hesitation, the little boy said, Grandma, I found Adam's pants. <laughs> Another little boy was at his grandmother's house and he had just been to school, uh, been to Sunday school and they'd been learning about the story that we just r- read where uh, God took the woman from Adam's rib and... Um, The grandmother went in and the little boy was writhing on the floor with a pain in his side. And his grandmother said, what's wrong? He said, Grandma, I think I'm I'm having a wife. (laughs) That's for Pastor Derek because he missed my uh, really good uh, groaner a few weeks ago. Today we begin chapter one of the story. The story is a giant Mural. Now, in Sudbury, um, what did you people do while I was on vacation? Apparently, we're home to the world's largest mural. But as I understand murals, murals are supposed to tell a story from beginning to end. And the story that we're going to look at is God's story. It is what is referred to as the upper story, which makes the lower story, our story, possible. Now, for the next 31 weeks, with the exception of a a break in December and then one in the spring, we're going to look at five movements of of the story. We're going to look at the garden. We'll look at that today. We're going to look at ancient Israel. We're going to look at the story of Jesus. We're going to look at the story of the church. And then we're going to look at the story of the new garden. A friend of mine once told me that you can actually summarize the entire story of the Bible in three gardens. The Garden of Eden, it continues in the Garden of Gethsemane, and it, can, and it concludes in the Garden City in the book of Revelation where the river of life is lined with the trees for the healing of the nations. But today, we are beginning with creation. And we read in our text, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now, there's a number of things that we immediately discover here, and the first one, and the most important one, is that we are introduced to the main character of the story, which is God. God. The second thing that we are told is that God is the creator. Creator. Now, we need to pause here, and we need to make a couple of comments A couple of comments that I think some of us uh, may be uncomfortable with, but be that as it may, they need to be made. And we need to understand, first of all, that when the Bible talks about God creating the heavens and the earth, it's not talking talking about who and it's talking about what, but it's not necessarily talking about how. Now, Christians 
have had, over the years, have had different theories, and theories is the word, because theories are not fact, they're theories. They're put forth as plausible as possible. We have three theories around how God created the heavens and the earth. The first one is referred to young earth creationism, which really means the one that I grew up with actually and was taught that God created earth in the seven-day week, 24-hour days. And that might be possible. And that the earth is only 6,000 to 10,000 years old. And then comes old earth creationism. And basically what that means is that the 24 hours may not, the 24 hour, the days rather, may not be 24 hour days. They may be days of thousands or billions of years. And where we get that from is from 2 Peter chapter 3 verse 8 where Peter says, do not forget this one thing, dear friends, with the Lord a day is like a thousand years and a thousand years is like a day. The third way in which we interpret creation is called theistic evolutionism or scientific creationism that God used together with uh, different things. God used evolution to bring about all that is created. Now, whatever theory we choose, whatever one of these three you and I choose, we need to understand that with all of them there are problems. And the truth is that none of these theories are watertight. But here's the other thing. None of these theories undermines the purpose, the authority, or the integrity of the Bible. Genesis chapters 1 and 2 is not intended to be a science book or to uncover the age of creation, or the process that God used to pull it off. I mean, think about it. God is God. He could have used a nanosecond. He could have used billions of years. God had a way to pull it off, and here's the deal, is that he could have told us, but the truth is he really didn't tell us. He didn't tell us enough. And this is what I call the ambiguity of the Bible. And we've talked about this before. What, don't you wish, don't you wish that when you read the Bible and you come up against some of the controversial things that God would have just added a few more verses? You know, just a few, come on, Paul, give me a couple of more lines. But he doesn't, and the Holy Spirit doesn't, because here's what I believe, that ambiguity in the Bible is as inspired as anything else in the Bible. Because here's the deal. How God did it is a mystery. It's a mystery. Nobody knows. Were you there? I wasn't there. I might look like I'm in there, but I wasn't. Nobody knows how God did it. And anybody who claims that definitively they know are not really being totally, totally honest. Maybe that's why Paul says what he says in Hebrews. He says, by faith. By faith we understand that the universe was formed at God's command so that what is seen is not made out of what is visible. The point is that we are told that God is the creator. That's the point. How he did it is not the issue. It's who did it. And that he did it. God is the creator. 
And everyone and everything, every living person, every living thing finds their life, their breath, and being from him. This is what Paul said. He said, for in him we live and move and have our being. And I love this text in Job. You read through the book of Job and you're really thankful if you come up with something really good. And in the book of Job, chapter 34, it says this. If he withdrew his spirit, if God withdrew his spirit and breath, all humanity would perish together and mankind would return to the dust. Paul said it a little differently in the New Testament. In Colossians, he says that Jesus Christ is the sustainer of creation. That's what he means, one of the things that he means. God is creator. And the story starts not by accident or, or by chance, Genesis chapters 1 and 2 is not about how or who, but also about why. Why did God create Adam and Eve? Why did God create Adam and Eve? Well, here's my answer. God created an Adam and Eve, God created Adam and Eve for the same reason married children, married people have children. Same reason. They first start with a puppy. Have you noticed how many young couples get or have puppies? Anybody, has anybody else noticed that? Raise your hand if you've noticed that. Oh, thank you. Five of us. Do you know why? Because puppies are precursors to children. But here's the real reason. Married couples have children because they want and have to share this love that they have together with another being who can receive and reciprocate that love. It's natural. We don't think about it like that, but the moment you get married, you get a puppy because you don't want to have a baby right away, but you have babies because there is such love in this relationship of marriage and you're so over the top and we have to share it with somebody. So let's have a baby. And let's share this love and this joy that we have with this baby. And this baby will not only receive this love, but will reciprocate it and give it back to us. That's why God created Adam and Eve. The same reason. God created human beings because God is a family. God is a community. God is a marriage of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Three persons. God is a marriage, a community. God is a family with perfect love and peace and communication and harmony and unity. And the triune God wanted to share this life and love within the Trinity with a creature or creatures that could receive and reciprocate this love and life that is in the Godhead. That's why he created Adam and Eve. And he did this, the Bible tells us, in a beautiful garden. And that brings us to the location of creation, a garden called Eden. Now, 
We really don't know the location of Eden. Now, historically and biblically, this has been the place just around the Euphrates in modern-day Iraq is actually where people say it is. But the truth is, it could have been, the Garden of Eden could have been as far south as Africa. We really don't know. And we know what happens there, don't we? We know what comes next. The fall, not autumn, the fall. And everything that is wrong, everything that is wrong with the world got its start right here with the disobedience and the rebellion of our first parents. Now, before we all get sanctimonious and self-righteous and come up with this question and say, well, you know, Pastor, I don't see why I got to live with the consequences of Adam and Eve's sin because I wasn't there. Here's why we live with the consequences of Adam and Eve's sin. If I was there, if you were there, in those exact same circumstances you and I would have made the exact same choice. Adam and Eve are representative of all humanity. But we, you and I, and creation, we have been living with the consequences of that decision ever since. The eight of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. The knowledge, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil is placed at the center of the Garden of Eden. And God says to them, listen, <clears throat> I have made this beautiful garden and it's got everything, all the bells and whistles, everything. And you can have everything and it's all there for you and it's all for you to enjoy and for your pleasure. But don't touch the tree of good and knowledge, knowledge of good and evil in the middle of the garden. But you know us. It's like a sign that says wet paint. You just got to touch it. That's why the sign is there. You got to touch it. <sighs> Forgive me for this, but I heard a lady say, a lady say it is unlikely that it was an apple because she said there is no way that any female in the entire world that would sell out the would sell out the store for an apple it had to be chocolate <laughs> so from now on men it's adam's chocolate but seriously the decision introduced sin into the human race. And since then, it has kept us from communication, from community with God and with each other. And here's the deal. They knew that they did wrong. Because before the incident, we read this, and you read it this morning, in Genesis 2.25, and Adam and his wife were both naked and they felt no shame. Pure and perfect innocence. And then after the incident, 
we are told this in Genesis 3-7. And then the eyes of both of them were opened and they realized that they were naked. And so they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. And then, Genesis 3.8. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the... What must that have been like? That God would come down and walk in the garden in the cool... What must... Wouldn't you have liked to have been there? And then we read this. And they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. And now, corruption and sin, brokenness and death have entered our world. There are a number of things that happen, but the next thing that happens is another tragedy. Adam and Eve are the very first parents who will have to bury their own child. God never intended the world as a place where parents would have to bury their children. And Genesis 4 tells us the sad story, the famous or, famous or infamous story of Cain and Abel. You know what's ironic about the story of Cain and Abel? I mean, there's numbers of ironies in it, but the first murder, now listen to this for a minute, the first death, the first murder in all creation is over religion. It's over worship. It's over which sacrifice is better and which act of worship is acceptable. And then come God's immortal words to Cain where he says this, If you do what is right, will you not be accepted? But if you do not, if you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at your door and it desires to have you, but you must rule over it. Pause. Pause now. And these are the same immortal words that God says to me and he says to you. Sin is crouching at our door and it desires to have us. But we must rule over it. We all feel it, do we not? Individually and personally, do we not feel it in our own lives that there's something wrong? That we all have this dark side to us, this sinful side to us, and sometimes 
the very things that we don't want to do and we know we shouldn't do are the very things that we do do. And the things that we want to do and we know we should do and we will to do, we don't do. This is Paul's statement, of course. Sin is crouching at my door. Sin is crouching at your door. Sin is crouching at our door, and it desires to have us. And we all know we have it. And I would say that only the most arrogant of us argue that we do not. And, and, and I'll give you this. It is a difficult, it is a tremendously difficult biblical principle to get our heads around and our hearts around and to admit it because it's just not fair. It's hard to accept. But there's also this. We know as we go on in the first part of Genesis that this escalates, this sin thing escalates to the point where society deconstructs and it de-civilizes and God has to step in. And Genesis 6 tells us, And the Lord saw how great the wickedness of the human race had become on earth. And that every inclination of the thoughts of the human heart was only evil because sin had us. Evil all the time. And the Lord regretted that he had made human beings on the earth and his heart was deeply troubled. And this is one of the most awful declarations that comes from the mouth of God in the entire Bible. The Lord regretted that he made us. Whenever society gets to this place, God has to intervene. And this is exactly what he does, and this brings us to Genesis chapter 6 with Noah and the flood. And Genesis chapter 6, 7, and 8 says these words, So the Lord said, I will wipe from the face of the earth the human race I create, I love, I have created, and with them the animals, the birds, and the creatures that move along the ground, for I regret that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. This is a hard truth when the whole program of creation has to be rebooted. And God chose to re reboot it through the flood. <clears throat> Did you know that every civilization, civilization from the most primitive today to the most ancient, to the most modern. Every civilization, every people group has a, an awareness, an innate awareness that there was a flood. And a flood a thousand times more massive than Dorian, the hurricane that took out part of the Bahamas. The Bible says that the waters came down and the waters came up and flooded the known world. 
You know, I know that many of us who are Bible-believing Christians that have been Christians for a long time have sort of accepted this. But the destruction of everything, it's hard to intellectually accommodate it or spiritually or emotionally. But there's hope. There's hope. For Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. And so they're on this boat, and it rains for 40 days, and it rains for 40 nights, and the rain stop, and they're on this boat for another 150, 200 days, and finally, Noah discovers that the waters have receded and they can get off. Uh, what's that thing that, you know, all of you that are, take cruises, how many of you take cruises? Cruises, raise your hand, not a sin to take cruises. Okay, what's that thing when you come off the cruise ship to go to the dock? What is that thing called, that walkway? A gangway. Aha, thank you. When they walk down the gangway, they make a devastating discovery, and we do too. That even with the reboot of the program of creation, does not solve the problem. Noah and his family took the sin virus from Adam. They took it with them on the boat and they walked off the boat with it. And it's only just a short matter of time before sin begins to raise its ugly head and brings us to Genesis chapter 11 and to the Tower of Babel. And then it says this in Genesis 11:4, "Come," they said, "let us build ourselves a city with a tower that reaches to the heavens." What's going on there? Well, what's going on at the Tower of Babel is this, it's an attempt to get back to God. But it's an attempt to get back to God our own way, on our own ability, on our own means. But it does not work and it ends tragically because God will have none of it. We cannot come to God on our terms. We come to God on his terms. And this is the lesson that we learn in the, in the Tower of Babel and there are other things. But there's also this. The story doesn't end here. Somebody said to me once that the entire rest of the Bible from Genesis chapter 12 verse 1 to Revelation chapter 22 verse 21, I think it is, is the story of the undoing of everything that happened in the first 11 chapters of Genesis. And that's what we're going to be doing over the next 30 weeks. This is what we're going to discover. But there is one question that remains. 
One that's going to come up over and over again in our Bible study, in our life groups, on Sunday mornings. It's going to come up with your kids when you read the books to them. It's going to come up when you read the story Bible yourself. It's going to come up over and over again. And it's the question is, why? Why does God want us back? And he does. Why does God love us? And he does. Why does he pursue us with such severity? And he does. Even in my state and your state of rebellion. It's going to be challenging for me to help us understand why. It's going to be challenging for you to help your kids understand why. But this is the question. Why does God love us? Why does he want us back? Why does he pursue us with such urgency? And that's the question. And that's the question I want to leave us with this morning. Would you stand? Would you just for a moment just close your eyes or whatever it is that you do for privacy when you're in a crowd. Ask the question, why? God, you know I'm a mess. God, you know that I am sinful and I want to go my own way. It's not just Adam and Eve, it's me. Why do you love me so much? Why do you want me back? And why do you pursue me with such severity, with such intensity, with such determination and tenacity? Father, I pray this morning for everybody in this room. I pray for those that are watching online. I pray that this would be the question and even a statement. God loves us. He wants us back. And he pursues us. Lord, let that truth penetrate into the deepest fiber of our being, into our heart of hearts and into the depths of our soul. That we may arise, Lord, with a new understanding of what your grace and your love and your mercy is all about. And so, Father, on this opening Sunday of chapter 1, we offer ourselves to you. We open our lives and we open our hearts to a journey. And many of us are in many different places on that road, on that journey. But in every place, your Holy Spirit walks beside us. Lead us, guide us, we pray. In Jesus' glorious and wonderful name, amen.